Okay, good morning. So good to see everyone this morning. And uh, my name is Hugh, and I serve on the leadership team here at SGC. And uh, I have the privilege this morning to share the message from uh, the book of John, the Gospel of John. We're, we're currently preaching, as obviously as you're aware, uh, through the Gospel of John, and we have been we have worked our way really through. Um, last week we went through John thirteen thirty verse thirty, and uh, Alan was uh, preached on that uh, passage from uh, verse one to thirty. <clears throat> and uh, this morning, then we're going to be covering verses thirty one through thirty eight. Uh, the title of Alan's message was Cleansing Power for Christ-like Service. And the main point of his message was the cleansing we receive from Jesus empowers us to serve others like Jesus did. Well, today we're going to learn more about the explosive power of God's love for us and how it empowers us to love one another as he loves us. So as we get into chapter 13, <clears throat> what we see is uh, Jesus' public ministry to Israel, the, the general populace there, has ended. Uh, you could probably tell if I, as you read along. Uh, uh, in, in chapters 13 through 17, Jesus is now engaged in private ministry to his disciples, <clears throat> um, particularly the 11. Um, Beginning in verse 31 of the, chap of, of the chapter, through the end of chapter 16, Jesus is basically preparing his disciples, except Judas, of course, for his imminent departure and life after his departure. During these final few hours leading up to the crucifixion, Jesus spent quite a bit of time with the disciples. And one of the things he was doing was preparing them, as I said, for life after his departure. He wanted to let them know that although he was leaving, they would not be left as orphans because he would continue to be with them. But not in the same sense <clears throat> as they were used to up to that time. Their relationship would be much closer, in fact, and intimate than it had been before. He tried to convey to them that it was expedient for them, for him to leave, because he would send the comforter to them, who would not only be with them, but in them, in power. <clears throat> and they would be able to accomplish much greater things, both in terms of their own spiritual growth, as well as missions and evangelism than if, they had remained, if he had remained with them. Understandably, though, they had a hard time grasping <clears throat> what he was telling them at the time. But later on, when the day of Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit came upon them in power, and onward after that, they began to realize more and more what Jesus was trying to convey to them. He reassures them of his supreme love for them during this time. But not only that, he assures and encourages them 
regarding his, his continued presence with them as they carry on the work and the ministry which he began. These discourses took place in the upper room where they had supper, you know, which is celebrated, you know, the last supper, uh, communion. Uh, and it's followed by Jesus' high priestly prayer in chapter 17, where Jesus uh, prays for them and all who would believe through them. So this is what we have to look forward to over the next several weeks. I hope you're excited about that, right? Uh, so with that little bit of background, <clears throat> which hopefully you found to be helpful, let's now get into the morning's message, which is John 13, 31 through 38. The title of the message is, Jesus prepares his disciples for his imminent departure and life after his departure. Not too creative there, because the passage just tells us that. <laughs> uh, and the main point of the message is, Christ's supreme love for his own compels them and compels us to love others as he has loved us. And this is, I think, will become very evident <clears throat> as we read and study through these verses. So let's go ahead and read. We're going to read John 13, verses 31 through 38. Um, when he, referring to Judas, had, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God would also glorify him him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, <clears throat> so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? <clears throat> Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Father, thank you for your word uh, to us this morning, to our dear brother John, Father. And Lord, we just ask that you'd use that word and by your spirit, Lord, just continue to teach us what true love really is. Lord, help us to grow in our understanding of that and to abound in that with regards to Lord our love for one another. We need your help so much in all of that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, the dismissal of Judas and his departure from the rest of the disciples in the upper room seemed to trigger the final countdown to Jesus laying his life down on the cross. It put into motion the betrayal and subsequent arrest, the trial and execution. 
It was not until Judas left the scene that Jesus began his farewell address to the eleven. He begins his address by declaring that Jesus, that, that now is the Son of Man glorified, which refers to his imminent death on the cross, the very next day, in fact, followed by his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. <clears throat> to the disciples, and really to, to all his haters, which included the Jewish leaders and many others, the cross appeared to be a very shameful and disastrous defeat for Jesus. But it was through the cross in which he laid down his life for sinners, where Christ's glory was very clearly displayed. As a reminder, glorified here speaks of Christ being fully revealed for who he truly is. Pastor Billy discussed this a couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, when he preached on the passage in John 12, verses 20 through 26. So we won't go back into to that. But here in chapter 13, Jesus uses the word title, uh, uh, the, the, the title Son of Man, again, which speaks of, and he's used this title a number of times in the book of John. Uh, and it speaks of him embracing his humanity, him representing humanity perfectly through his sinless life and his death on the cross so that those who put their faith in him would have eternal life. As a result, God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name at which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we see reference to the Son of Man in, in Daniel 7. Uh, verse 14, it says, And to him was given dominion and glory and, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Well, verse 32 tells us, back in John 13, that God the Father is himself glorified through the same event in which Jesus is glorified. In other words, through the cross, God's glorious nature was supremely put on display. Jesus' glorification through the cross meant that he would have to leave his disciples, though. The thought of, uh, <clears throat> and the thought of which they found difficult to understand and accept as well as painful and frightening, probably as any one of us would be, you know. So they were heartbroken and sorrowful. And this is so understandable in view of the relationship which was built over the last three, three and a half years. They had left everything to follow him, as any true disciple would or should. <laughs> and they loved him. And they were very dependent upon him. So here he's announcing to them, I'm leaving you guys. How would that feel to you? 
Dur uh, earlier during, um, just as it's about public ministry, when the, uh, when the question arose whether they would also leave him, you know, remember that situation, you know, Jesus asked them, well, are you guys going to leave too? <laughs> like others have done, Peter said, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Again, you could understand, this is a person, Jesus, that they're, they love, but they're so dependent on him. They've followed him all these years. Knowing that with his glorification, his departure was evident, or was imminent, rather, Jesus proceeded to comfort and encourage them, as well as prepare them for life after his departure. And so this is what we find in the rest of chapter 13, in fact, all the way through chapter 16. With gentleness and affection, he addresses them as his dear children. He says, little children, as some translations say, which is a term of endearment used frequently by John himself in his three epistles, but also by Paul in Galatians 4.19, where he says, um, well, I don't have it in, in my notes here, but Paul refers to to the Galatians, and here are these people who he's really harshly rebu rebuking, and he's referring to them as his little children as well. So in verse 33, though, back to John 13, he says to them, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, twice before, Jesus had told the unbelieving Jews that he was departing. And they would <clears throat> look for him, but would be unable to find him. And that where he's going, they could not follow him. Now, or later for that matter, because of their unbelief in him. But his tone was completely different when he announced his imminent return to his departure. I mean, when he announces imminent departure to his disciples, <clears throat> they would not be able to follow him now. But later, they would be able to, as Jesus clarifies later on in verse 36. We'll get to that in a little while. In fact, <clears throat> in just a few moments later in his discourse to them, he told them in chapter 14, verses 2 to 4, that he was in fact going to prepare a place for them. And he would return to get them later on so that where he is, they would be also. So he's not abandoning them. He's not saying you can't come. He's just saying right now, you can't come right now. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. And we'll look at that here in a, minute, in a few minutes. In the meantime, though, the work which he began continues. And disciples would be entrusted with that work. Hence, we read, like in the other Gospels, the great commission which he gave to them after his resurrection to go into all the world and make disciples. <laughs> Preparation and equipping for that work actually started at that moment in the upper room. Actually started before that, you know, during his ministry, but in intensely so during the upper room. <clears throat> this course, as, his, as he gave them 
a new commandment to love one another as he loved them. As we get into chapters uh, 14 through 16, he tells them about the equipping by the Holy Spirit who he would ask the Father to pour out upon them, as well as all who would believe in him through their, their word, which would enable them and empower them to do the work that he has called them to do. Well, let's talk about the new commandment which he gave to them, and really to all those who believe. So it's us, right? It's, it's not just telling them, he's telling us. Jesus says in verse, verses 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Earlier in chapter 13, verse 1, John made the statement about the love which Jesus had for his disciples. He says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the, in the world, he loved them, it says, to the end. John says here that Jesus loved the disciples to the end. You might be wondering, what in the world is he actually mean by that? that Jesus loved them to the end. It could mean that Jesus loved them to the end of his, his earthly life, which is certainly true. But we know that Jesus' love for his own continues into eternity. In fact, one of the privileges of our sonship is that in eternity, we will experience the love of both Jesus and the Father as we have never experienced it while on earth in these fallen vessels. Another meaning, though, which John is wanting to convey <clears throat> is that Jesus loved them with perfection, with completeness. And it speaks of Jesus loving his own with the fullest measure of love. One translation says that he loved them to the highest degree. And we're, he's telling the disciples, hey, that's how you need to love one another. Sounds impossible, isn't it? Well, the love which John is talking about, about here is not the kind of love we see demonstrated in contemporary society. John MacArthur, in his commentary on this passage, says this about the love which permeates our society. And so I've put all of this in, in the notes that you have. He says, contemporary society is obsessed with love. We sort of talk about love a lot, actually. <laughs> From romantic novels to popular songs to cheap paperback novels, romance is a primary theme in both entertainment and in everyday conversations. It's also big business as newspaper columnists, talk show hosts, and the internet websites <clears throat> often uh, offer pertinent advice to the lovelorn. <laughs> but despite all the world's talk about love, very few people actually understand the real thing. The modern world's version of love 
is unabashedly narcissistic, totally self-focused, and shamelessly manipulative. It sees others merely as a means of self-gratification. Not surprisingly, relationships between selfish people usually do not last. But in sharp contrast to the self-centered kind of to that self-centered kind of love, the Bible teaches that the essence of love is self-sacrifice. Instead of, instead of tearing others down, biblical love seeks to build them up. Instead of first pursuing its own good, it pursues the good and interests of other people. Instead of seeking to have its own needs met, it seeks to meet the needs of others. <clears throat> and so immediately after John uh, states that Jesus loved his own to the highest degree possible, with perfection <laughs> to the uttermost completely. I mean, they're amazingly, I mean, there's just words go on and on. Guess what he did? He follows it with the example of Jesus' self-abasing love displayed in washing the disciples' feet, which itself anticipates Jesus further humbling himself by his death on the cross. Later in John 15, <clears throat> verse 13, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, greater love has no one than this, that he lays life down for his friends. See, that indeed is loving to the highest degree possible. Paul says this, and it's, uh, uh, I put this, I added this late, so it's not in your notes, unfortunately. Sorry about that. But Paul says this about God's amazing love for us in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> it says, for, for while we were still weak, and that weak or weakness, it meant powerless to help ourselves. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, Colossians, Paul in Colossians tells us that, you know, when he says while we're still sinners here, that we were God-haters, we're hostile towards God. We were running away from him. <laughs> Did everything to do that. We weren't seeking him out. Well, John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, at the cross, the love of God through Jesus Christ was put on display in an unsurpassable and eternally unique way. It is this infinite expression of love that undergirds the Lord's command to love one another even as I have loved you. Well, his command to love one another in one sense is not really new, per se. In the Old Testament under the law, God commanded the people to love God with all their heart and to love neighbor as oneself. In fact, Jesus himself said that on these two commandments hang all the law on the prophets. 
Basically, this implies that all of the requirements of the law are met or are satisfied by keeping these two commandments. So what is new about his commandment to love? So what is new in Jesus' command to disciples is that he's calling them to a higher standard of love. One based on the example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself laying down his life for them. Jesus loved his own to the highest degree. And he calls us to do the same as exemplified by him washing their feet and ultimately to the cross where he laid his own life down for them. Paul had this kind of love in mind when he wrote in Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2. He says there, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he says, make my joy complete because being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. See, in, 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 ex, in exhorting them to have the same love for one another, he's basically saying the same thing that Jesus uh, commands his disciples to do, to love one another as he loved them. See, that same love is not treating everybody the same way. Because we're all unique people, different people, and God loves us uniquely in, in many ways. Um, <clears throat> the same love which Paul talks about speaks of Jesus' love for his own. Paul actually goes on in the next several verses to show that this kind of a, what this kind of a love looks like. And he used, guess what? The same example of Jesus humbling himself in becoming like us and further humbling himself to death on a cross. This kind of love which Jesus commands his disciples to have for one another is impossible. <laughs> You're probably sitting there thinking, man, I'm doing good to even keep up my own standard of love that I had. <laughs> How can we love in one another in this manner that Jesus is talking about? So we think it's impossible, but it is. Unless we have experienced his love as we have placed faith in him and are born again. See, with the new birth, God's love was shed abroad. And it, it, you know, it means poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who is given to us according to Paul in Romans 5.5. 5. Titus tells us in Titus 3.6 that at salvation, the Holy Spirit was richly and poured out among us through Jesus Christ our Savior and with him the love of God. See the pouring out of God's love in our hearts speaks of God's love for us. This is a transformative uh, love which produces in us love for God and love for others via divine empowerment by the Holy Spirit. Hence John says in his letters, and you read John's letters, uh, 
John says we love. Why? Because he first loved us. So in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, Paul says this, for the love of Christ then, in other words, he's not talking about the, our love for him, but his love for us controls us. It impels us um, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died, and he died for all, that those who live, those who are made alive through faith in Jesus Christ, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What Paul is saying here is that Christ's love for, for him, Paul, and for us, is so motivating that he cannot bring himself to respond to it in any other way. He's driven, compelled to keep telling others about it. Christ's love was essentially, has essentially taken Paul captive to do Christ's work on this earth, no matter the obstacles and the opposition he faced. But back to John 13:35 then, here Jesus goes on to say to his disciples, that by them loving others as he loves them. So let me just back up here too, because this is, this is you know, when we become Christians, um, obviously we said his love is shed abroad in our hearts, right? But for the rest of our lives, we're growing in this. It's not like, okay, today I'm going to go out and you know, the, the Lord by speed may lead us to go lay our lives down in some fashion. And, you know, at that point, we have the capability of doing it. But it's something that we're going to be growing in as we learn more and more about God's love for us, which is part of, you know, what we're doing this morning as we hear God's words preached. And we're learning more and more what, what this is love for us. We're learning more about that and what means then in us loving one another. <clears throat> well, verse 35. <clears throat> Here, Jesus goes on to his, uh, says to his disciples that by them loving others as he loves them, people in the world will know that they are his disciples. You know, history tells us, in fact, Acts 11.26 tells us, that the disciples were first called Christians in a place called Antioch. They were called Christians by whom? By the unbelievers around them. The, the Greek word, in fact, um, is Christianos, which means followers of Christ. And interestingly, the disciples, <laughs> uh, you know, the disciples didn't give themselves that name. <clears throat> In fact, they apparently did not appreciate that name. But like many other nicknames, it stuck. Well, today, everybody seems to call themselves Christian. Uh, probably lost a lot of meaning there, isn't it? From then to now. Well, 
a believer's love for other believers and unbelievers as well too <clears throat> provides assurance of genuine faith in Christ. Did you know that? Did you realize that? <clears throat> Let's think about that for a minute. In John, in 1 John 3.14, John says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. It seems that the true test of whether or not we're in the faith, we're really true Christians, is not whether we attend church regularly, read the Bible regularly, give regularly, have the right doctrine per se, not that any of these things are unimportant, but it's whether we truly love the brethren in the manner which the Bible defines and describes love. However, these other things that I mentioned certainly should be present in our lives increasingly if we know Christ savingly. By knowing him savingly should result in us loving the brethren. We love others that he loves because <laughs> he loves them and we're called to do the same. The Lord's command to love one another as he has loved us, extends beyond the covenant community. You know, we other believers, right? It extends beyond that to loving all people. So Jesus wasn't just confining it. Okay, you love one another, but forget about those people out in the world. You, know, you don't need to bother with them. You don't need to love them. No, that's not what he was trying to get across to them. In fact, that same love is going to, you know, it, it, it compels them to go into the world and preach the gospel to all. Um, <clears throat> Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 3.12 was that they would, the Thessalonians would increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. Well, let's look at a little bit of application uh, here for a minute. So how are you doing with regards to Jesus' command to love one another as he has loved you? My guess would be that we all recognize the need to grow in our love for one another, whether it's family members, friends, church brothers and sisters, neighbors, co-workers, and the list goes on. So here's maybe the application point uh, that will help us on the way. <laughs> so what is one or two things that you could identify which would cause you to increase and abound in love more and more for others? There are likely many answers you could think of and come up with, <clears throat> many of which likely have to do with things like building relationships with certain people who you don't know very well, having people over more frequently, visit and care more for the sick and the elderly, the orphans, the widows, witness more to co-workers, neighbors, and others. These are all wonderful things which we should be engaged in and which should actually result because of our love for one another. 
But I think one thing for sure that should be at the top of our list, and which <clears throat> you may or may not have thought about, is having a greater apprehension of God's love for you. And the transformation in your heart, which would result from that. So in Ephesians 3, verse uh, 17 through 19, Paul prays for this very thing. So let's look at this together. We'll read it, but can we make it a prayer as well for us? So in verse 14, that's Ephesians 3. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 13. I said 17, but 13. It says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you may be, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Knowing the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, speaks really of personally experiencing Christ's love and not just knowing facts about his love for us. <clears throat> we may know what the scriptures say about God's love for us, but knowing it experientially raises our knowledge to a different level, doesn't it? Well, go back to uh, we're going to go now to verses 36 through 38 and so there Peter like the other disciples <laughs> it's kind of interesting here you know I read that and you probably see the same thing uh, they seem less interested in the new commandment <laughs> to love one another and more interested in, and concerned about the Lord's soon departure that was the thing at hand for them, right? You're leaving us, and man, are we gonna, what are we going to do without you? Um, this, of course, will change dramatically <clears throat> Though, uh, through, after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost upon them and all believers. For now, though, in other words, their understanding of that. Uh, for now, though, they're heartbroken, troubled. And that's what's being reflected here, right? It's not that they don't think loving one another is important or anything, but this other thing was more pressing to them. Um, <clears throat> but they're heartbroken, troubled, sorrowful about his departure, and they feel helpless. So we find Jesus comforting them in the next three chapters with words like, it says, let not your hearts be troubled, nor let it be afraid. I go to prepare a place for you so that you will be with me forever. 
he promised to ask the Father to send them another comforter like himself, who would be with them and in them. And here he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. He would, he would send. He told them he would give them his peace, not as the world gives, so that they would be able to navigate troubled waters without freaking out. He told them that now they are sorrowful, but their sorrow is going to turn to joy. At this point in the discourse, Peter spoke up. Although they all were likely thinking what Peter was thinking, so he asked the question, Lord, where are you going? His question likely reflects their anxiety over him leaving and not necessarily understanding why he was leaving. Based on the accounts in the other Gospels, they had difficulty reconciling his repeated statements that he was actually, in fact, going to die uh, with their preconceived ideas of the kingdom, establishing a kingdom on, on an earthly kingdom. Well, Jesus did not answer Peter's question directly, <clears throat> but he told them that where he's going, Peter could not follow him now, but he would follow him later. Well, that answer did not satisfy Peter. If he could follow Jesus later, you know, why can't he do it right now? Makes sense to me, right? Peter even indicated his willingness to lay his life down for Jesus. In the other gospel accounts, Peter was insistent as he voiced his allegiance to Jesus. He said things like, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never leave you. That's in Matthew 26, verse 33. In Mark 14:31, he says, even if I have to die for you, I will not deny you. In Luke, he said to Jesus, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to die. In Mark's account, we see that the rest of the disciples actually followed Peter's lead in saying the same things. <laughs> so it wasn't just Peter. <clears throat> and we know from what happened that Peter denied Jesus and all the disciples fell away. Well, Jesus didn't provide Peter with any explanation regarding where he's going and why. And why. <clears throat> and why Peter could not follow him then, but later would. I appreciate what D.A. Carson has to say about this in his commentary on this passage. So he said, this should be in your notes, he says this, Peter, Peter cannot follow now not only because it is not the time for him to die, but because only Jesus, the Lamb of God, can offer the sacrifice that deals with the world's sin. Only he could, re he could reveal the Father's 
perfectly and be glorified in the presence of the Father with the glory that he had before the world began. But Peter will follow later, not as a second Lamb of God, but in the sense that he will follow Jesus in death, even laying down his life for the sake of the gospel. It, Carson didn't say this, but... And he would join him in glory later. Well, in closing, let's briefly uh, ref just reflect briefly on this passage that we looked at in, 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 in John 13. Jesus' conversation with Peter illustrates the extent of Christ's love for us made possible through his sacrifice on the cross in two significant ways. And some of these thoughts are actually borrowed from John MacArthur. <clears throat> First, their conversation demonstrated the eternal significance of Christ's love because he guaranteed eternal life to his disciples. Do you realize that? He told Peter and the others, you can't follow me to where I'm going now, but you will follow me later to glory. This is all because of placing faith in Christ and his work on the cross. Second, the dialogue with Peter also evidenced the power of Christ's love for them, which proved greater than their disloyalty. As Peter denied Jesus and all of them fell away. Well, think about that. That provides great hope and confidence for all of us who sometimes struggle in our own faith, our own faith walk with the Lord, and with loving one another in the manner with which he commands us to love as he loved us. So I asked a question earlier <clears throat> about one or two things that you could identify which would cause you to increase and abound in love more and more for others. I mentioned that one thing for sure that should be at the top of the list is having a greater apprehension for God's love, of God's love for, for you, and the transformation in your hearts which would result from that. To that end, we read Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. We're not going to read it again now. And Josh, if, we, if you would come, we're getting ready to close, but... We're not going to read it now again, but I would encourage you to use that of one of your prayers throughout this week. Pray, pray that for yourself. Pray that for your family and for the church. <clears throat> I think it will bear much fruit in your life and your love for one another. <clears throat>